Welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjaris, and as always, I'm really glad to have you here. As some of you might have heard, my friend and colleague and most recent podcast guest, Onyx Fuji, and I recently started Kintsugi Therapist Collective. And We are currently enrolling our Embodied Private Practice Cohort, a year-long mentorship offering for clinicians, any mental health clinicians, licensed or unlicensed, um, who are beginning or revisioning private practice with a focus on embodiment and sustainability. We're combining reality-based, capacity-conscious, clinical and business consultation, and mentorship, which will focus on the ways that therapists can be nurtured by clinical practice, avoid burnout, and commit to sustainability, self-care, and healing. This program will be focused on centering and valuing the unique experiences and challenges of therapists with lived experience of chronic illness, disability, mental illness, trauma, and oppression, with expansive thinking about an active undoing of the harm caused by the well provider slash unwell patient binary, which is a big expectation in the mental health and wellness fields. So to learn more about this um, opportunity, uh, you can go to our website, which is kintsugitherapistcollective.com or follow the link in my Instagram bio at living in this queer body. Um, This is a really earnestly considered and deeply felt offering that we hope will resonate and support folks in the mental health field. So we already have quite a few folks enrolled and we have a cap. Um, so we have a few more spots. Um, we have uh, applications due March 15th. And like I said, we're keeping the group small. So if this sounds appealing to you, please reach out with any questions um, or apply soon. The application process is, is pretty easy and and short, and you can find the application on our website. And the cohort will begin meeting on April 5th, and we really look forward to it. So on a very related note, actually, my podcast guest today is Laura May Northrup. Laura is an author, educator, somatic and psychedelic psychotherapist, and podcaster. And her book, Radical Healership, How to Build a Values-Driven Healing Practice in a Profit-Driven World, is an anti-capitalist, spiritually-led guidebook for healing practitioners, which is pretty connected. Our conversation connects a lot of, um, a lot to the conversation I had with Onyx um, in episode 50, and is really, you know, um, also very interrelated with the efforts that we are um, 
putting forth in the Kintsugi Therapist Collective. So Laura is also the host and creator of the podcast Inside Eyes, an audio series about people using enthogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. Her work focuses on defining sexual violence through a spiritual and politicized lens and mentoring healing practitioners in creating a meaningful path. In this interview, we talk about a lot of things, but we talk about the impact that growing up poor has had on Laura's embodied experience, utilizing psychedelics as a practice in being with suffering more skillfully, polyamory, the capitalist American dream machine, the importance of uncovering the unmet needs that healing practitioners bring to their work, and as I said, a lot more. Laura's book is wonderful, and you can purchase it anywhere. Um, I will include all the ways that you can connect with her work in the show notes, along with a link to the Kintsugi Therapist Collective website. And finally, the link in the show notes um, will bring you to a really big discount and free shipping um, on Laura's recently released book, Radical Healership. Just use the code, all caps, L-I-T-Q-B, living in this queer body. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. So Laura, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. We just had a, an entire podcast interview that um, will remain off the record. Um, that <laughs> was a very nice way to get to know you a little bit. So um, thank you for that. And um, th yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Asher. I'm excited to be here. Cool. So as always, I tend to start the podcast with a question and you can, you can really go wherever you would like with this, with this question. Um, but I, I guess I wonder what you, what your earliest memories are of kind of learning about what it meant to be in a body or, or realizing that you had a body and what that, that felt like for you. This is such a good question. And I, you know, I've been thinking about it, obviously, um, in terms of coming on your show, because I know you asked the question. Um, and yeah, I think I would probably answer that mostly from a class lens. Um, and just growing up in an experience of being poor and, uh, you know, and eventually kind of understanding my my role in the world as being somebody who works and works very hard. Um, and I think there's a many things that happened in my childhood that sort of prepped me for that, that related to the body. Like, you know, even just things like not having access to um, easy access to medical care mm. um, and just sort of an experience of like your body or my body um, is uh, not very important. Uh, it's for work. Yeah. Um, huh. And if you feel pain, you don't um, you don't like relieve the pain 
I mean, you know, you relieve it to some degree, but there is an experience that I think many people who experience poverty can relate to of um, that there's not sort of a, a like preciousness or a sense of like my body is always going to be taken care of. There's definitely a mm. lot of I'm just going to endure this. Yeah. And and that's been an interesting experience for me. Um, you know, like grow, growing up at age 16, I had a um, I actually had a repetitive stress injury from work by the time I was 16. That was really debilitating. I would come home from work and um, and lay down and not be able to stand back up because I was in so mm. much physical pain mm. and which I did. It's this, this pain and is now managed. And I worked really hard for years to manage it, which is a lot of actually what got me interested in somatic psychotherapy um, and becoming a, a somatic psychotherapist. But yeah, I think a really big part of healing that relationship is is really complicated within capitalism because there is so much pressure to just use your body with a, a, a like no regard for how much pain you're in. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's been an interesting process to heal around that basically and and to be like, oh, you don't your body is not just for work. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and if you feel a lot of pain, like it's okay to not want to be in pain. It's okay to want to give yourself care, which mm. is something, you know, a big message in poverty is like you, you do not deserve to have care for your body, for your, for your mind, for your spirit. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's, you don't deserve it. And it's also, you know, like just frankly, not accessible. It's just not there, you know? And so to, I, I would imagine, right. I guess I'm curious what, you think the impact of that sort of actual scarcity kind of what impact that had on you as a sort of developing and emerging adult and into your adulthood that that idea that you know you sounds like you're trying to work against but it it, it was your lived experience um yeah that's such a good question and i i oh gosh I'm, <laughs> it's a good question and I, there's it's so so complicated but one thing i will say about it that actually i think relates to my book which i know we're going to talk a bit more about mm -hmm. um is that i think there are some really positive things that come from having to survive through scarcity and then there are some really you know obviously really painful negative things that come from it one of the positive things is i'm not averse to working hard like you know, like when I when I like got out there and was like, OK, I'm, I have to build a practice like I wasn't like, oh, God, I don't know. I don't really want to. I was like, I will work as hard as it <laughs> takes, you know, like people are like, oh, I'm working on my website. It's really difficult. And then I'm like, yeah, I probably spent like 40 hours working on my website when I very first made it crying like the whole time. At the end, it was like probably only like two or three little pages on the website. Like I worked so hard on it. And actually, I think that it was, you know, it, it paid off. Like it was really good to have worked so hard on it, but it never, um, I don't even, I'm like, how do I explain this to somebody who maybe doesn't like, I don't know that everybody will relate to this, but um, it doesn't even occur to me to work less hard. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in some ways that's really amazing. It's amazing to just feel like, yeah, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to do everything that it takes to make it happen. And I do think that comes from an experience of scarcity of being like, I don't know how I'm going to get X, Y, and Z needs met unless I work very, very hard for it. And even then I still might not get it. But then I think the other side of that is um, 
you know, the experience of being neglected by society, which is a huge part of what poverty is, um, is that sometimes you just really accept neglect and you don't value yourself and you don't value, you don't think like, okay, I actually mm -hmm. do deserve more. You know, I think like there's this sort of classic experience of poverty where it's like, you think about yourself as kind of like tough and like, I don't really need that. You know, I can handle not having that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like a compensation for having to experience the sadness and the grief and the terror of not having certain things. Um, and so, and, you know, so obviously like in adulthood and like in building my practice and whatnot, it's, I mean, it's, sometimes it's really taken other people pointing things out. Like you can have this thing, you, you can, uh, it's okay to want to like be paid enough. It's like a great example. It's like, okay, I built this whole practice and I don't get paid enough. <laughs> right. Classic. <laughs> right. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love, you know, in your book, I love the way that you are really able to kind of convey. Um, and I think it's applicable, you know, for, for people in all sorts of fields, um, but that you're really able to convey the way that um, not addressing some of these kind of scarcity mindset issues that are definitely relate, like definitely grounded in lived experience, but how, how that can kind of make it impossible almost to have a sustainable practice. Um, and, and to have, you know, kind of a, an, an exchange with others that feels mutually nourishing, I guess. Um, and that was a big, you know, a big takeaway, I think from, from your book, probably because it's something that I, you know, I think about a lot in terms of just what are the components and they're different for a lot of, a lot of people, but what are the components for me that, that have to come together for my practice, whatever it is to, you know, my practice of parenting, my practice of being in a partnership, my practice of, you know, being a therapist, what, what has to come together in order for me to feel like it can be sustainable. And I think you really, um, I imagine that some of these insights were hard won, given the fact that you have this kind of um, ability to override or, or sort of not tend to um, your your needs based in in sort of experiences from childhood. Absolutely. And I, I mean, the hard one, an understatement. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's funny being a so I'm a supervisor. I supervise people who are um, who are becoming therapists. And I also talk to different types of healing practitioners, you know, about building their practices. And, um, you know, when you get to the point in your career where I'm at now, you know, people will be like kind of imagining you were always that way, you know, yeah. <laughs> They're like, I'm so embarrassed. I did this thing or that thing, or here's what's, you know, I, I, here's what's happening that I, I don't really know how to fix this thing. And I'm like, truly the only way I know how to give you some advice on this is that I have done the exact same thing. So definitely mm -hmm. that's a, I think a lot. And I, and I also, I'll also say, you know, I struggled with writing the book around, um, you know, I'm basically writing a, a kind of like a how-to self-help book but I'm trying to write it in this way where I'm right next to you as opposed to like above you telling you how yes. to do something. 
and and so I'm pretty exposing in it about my hard won journey uh, travels like in this in this world of um, making tons of mistakes. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, again, like with the kind of class experience, I, I talk about this in the book a bit, like part of uh, the experience of being poor or working class is really being told, whether it's implicitly or explicitly, <clears throat> that you are responsible for the labor that makes the world happen. And, you know, even just being in a job where uh, oftentimes the people who are the least paid in a job work the hardest. And I had that experience over and over again um, in the first like 10 years of my sort of working life where I would be working really, really hard and the people above me would work a little less hard and a little less and a little less. And, mm -hmm. um, or, or they would just do the labor that wasn't as like exhausting and awful. And, you know, I kind of ran my practice like that, but not just running it like I didn't get paid enough, but, you know, and for people who are listening, who are healing practitioners, I, I think this is sort of an interesting thing to think about. I actually interacted with my clients as though I was more responsible for the labor that would make them be, you know, like experiencing healing. Mm. And, and that's also an idea that people have about therapy. Like some people have this idea that you go to therapy and then the therapist does something to you or for yeah. you or does the work. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is where you come to work your ass off. And I'm just here kind of like a coach or like a, <clears throat> excuse me, like a, like a referee or something. Um, but, you know, I really didn't understand that early on. And, and so when you have a full caseload and you're feeling personally responsible, whether yes. you kind of consciously say it to yourself or not to make other people be different, like, no, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And, and when I really dug deep, it was like, oh yeah, I've always been told that I'm responsible to, you know, make this restaurant function, make this, mm. uh, you know, whatever, make this, this wherever I'm working, like that, I'm going to just bust my ass and not get paid enough. And, you know, when something terrible happens and someone needs to clean up vomit or whatever, it's like, okay, well, lowest paid person in the house, like you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's been an interesting process to be a therapist and be like, you have to clean your own vomit up. I'm not going to clean it up for you. Right. 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 And I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is your experience, but I, I do wonder if the, in, if, if you don't get the kind of quote unquote payoff from actually being compensated, the, the substitute, you know, compensation quote unquote is a feeling of competency. Um, right. Like I'm, I'm highly competent, um, but maybe not well cared for or, you know, valid valued. I don't know if that has been your experience at all. Um, I, well, and I, I think so. I would sort of like look at that from two different lenses. And, and one is this piece about like, you know, when you are made to feel like you have no value, we have all kinds of compensatory ways that we we deal with that type of emotional experience. And I think, yep. you know, one of the ways that I was sort of instructed to deal with that as a young person is like, I'm tough. I am a tough person and, or I, you know, I'm sort of like a durable industrious person. And yeah. then there's a, there's a sense of esteem that can come from that. Yeah. Um, and I am a tough industrious person. Like that actually is just a part of my life and my reality. Um, but you know, like that doesn't need to eclipse also the grief and the pain of being treated 
just so um, poorly and being treated as though I'm undeserving of, of like basic, you know, care in the world. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think there's that compensatory thing. However, I would also speak to this point you're bringing up from the lens of, um, and I, mean, we, I know we, we talked about this in our pre-interview that will never be heard um, where we just like <laughs> couldn't actually get to the interview because we were so engaged in, our, in all our stuff. But, um, you know, in the book, I talk about how um, oftentimes healing practitioners uh, can fall into a realm of getting our wounds met, like our needs met by using the people who we're working with. And one of the ways that we can do that is by um, building up our own sense of competency or superiority um, by being kind of, yeah, better than the person you're working with, more knowledgeable, um, the guru, the person who who can instruct and say, you know, how life should be lived, um, which is not good, not, not, not condoning that. Um, but it is something that I think is really important to talk about because it's a, it, it happens and it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to, I mean, I would love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that. I think it's it sort of uh, one of the things that I really liked um, was the part of the book where you talk about um, uncovering the shadow. Why, you know, essentially like the, the why of, of, you know, beyond the why of why you think you're doing the work you're doing, um, what needs are, are kind of being met potentially, um, not consciously, um, and how to bring that more into conscious awareness. And I wonder if there's, you know, I don't know, and I, maybe I'm, I'm, um, connecting dots that aren't, aren't, shouldn't be connected, but I wonder if some of the work that you've done personally with like psychedelics um, is, has somehow facilitated you being able to kind of come to terms with some of that uncovering the shadow. Why for you? Yeah. Well, and just for listeners. um, So I have a whole section where I go into the importance of understanding why you do this work. And I talk about, you know, like, the really beautiful, powerful, meaningful reason you do the work. And then the next chapter, I'm like, okay, also <laughs> not just the altruistic reasons. Like let's look right. at, you know, yeah, the, the shadow stuff. And yeah. So, um, uh, and in the shadow stuff, you know, is things like, I want to feel sane. I want to feel superior. I want to feel loved, revered, like I'm good at something. Um, mm-hmm. and I kind of go in specifically around what a lot of healing practitioners go through with that. So, and then this question, yeah, about psychedelics. I mean, I definitely think psychedelic uh, experiences have helped me to really challenge my ego. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, I'm like, how much of it is my therapist and how much of it is drugs? <laughs> That's always the question, right? <laughs> um, so I think that my healing work has definitely helped me to to think through that stuff. And I'll also say, I did a lot of psychedelic journeys in order to write the book. Um, mm. And yeah, if you, if you, if you read into the acknowledgement sections, I like thank all the drugs I took. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, I, so I, some of it, I would say definitely psychedelics have helped me to sort of challenge my ego in that way. And some of it also has just been a necessity. I feel um, to 
I, I don't know if it's a class thing or just a temperament thing. I really want to do very good work. I take a lot of pride in the work that I do. And <laughs> um, part of wanting to do very, very good work is that I do not leave a stone unturned. Um, and I think part of becoming a healing practitioner is really is about actually committing to turning a lot of stones over yes. that if you were just a person who was like, hey, I'm not going to use my whole body and mind and my whole like being as the instrument in my job, like you don't necessarily need to choose to do all this healing. But when you are a healing practitioner, you, your healing kind of never ends. <laughs> so so I think there's a lot that sort of pointed me towards looking at this. Um, this stuff about how we use um, our our the people we work with, our clients, our patients, whoever they might be, um, yeah. And I and I also think it's just been a really essential part of my path to um, to think about that. Like, you know, when you're kind of when you're doing the kind of work I'm doing, where it's like I have a podcast, I've written a book, and I also have my practice and I teach and things like that. There's all these little opportunities in this sort of unfortunate capitalist system that we live in that are about getting like narcissistic needs met mm -hmm. more than they are anything else. And it's so normalized that if you don't really look at it directly and think about it in a really conscious way, you could just kind of start falling into it. Like, so for example, um, you know, people will be like, okay, like you've got to build your social media following. And uh, this is a really important part of like what you're, you know, like whether what's going to be make you successful. And I had a really clear moment where I was like, oh, God, I've got to build my social media following. Right. Because that's like what I'm supposed to do. And um, and then I had this like clear moment of like, I actually don't need to build my social media following. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I, you know, the way that I like, what do I actually need in life? What I need is I need enough money to survive. I need things to be emotionally fulfilling. I need to be intellectually stimulated. I need to feel cared for. I need to feel like I have a sense of purpose. And I get all of those things through my practice and my teaching and my in my podcast, in my book. But I don't necessarily need those things to be sort of like um, praised publicly in a way that, you know, demonstrates that there's a lot of people praising it for mm -hmm. me to have all of those things. And that was a really interesting experience. And I talked to a lot of other people who are in similar roles, you know, where they're podcasting or they're they're working on their projects. And they also feel this pressure of like, oh, but I have to build this huge social media following. And I and I'm like, what is that ultimately? Because if you're not actually needing it, I, I think in some ways it's just this sort of unexamined, uh, like I want, you know, sort of like, hey, do you want to feel loved? Here's what we consider, you know, publicly something that's demonstrative of you are a loved, worthy person. You have thousands yeah. of people liking your posts, and uh, I actually don't need that for for myself to be like happy and successful. Some people build their businesses off of social media. I'm not doing that. Um, but like, what an interesting kind of moment of like, am I going to engage in this process where I sort of, um, need to like get all of this basically unmet, like wounded parts of me, yeah. um, taken care of through this process that ultimately it takes a lot of work and it's actually not even really related to what I'm trying to do to be successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I mean, I. I think that in our pre-conversation, we also were talking about kind of the 
the flattening of self or identity that that inevitably happens with kind of having some sort of public facing um, work identity. Um, and I think it's, it is, that is part of the lack of fulfillment, it sounds like for you, is that it becomes a, about, you've, you've come to realize that it is sort of about that need um, being met or not met and that you don't, um, that isn't very deeply fulfilling for you. Um, and so I, yeah, it's interesting to think about, um, I guess, speaking of like needs being met and things that you need in your life to sustain yourself. Um, it, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about that isn't necessarily part of the book, but part of, you know, something that, that is, I'm interested in talking to you about is kind of queerness and relationships and polyamory um, and how, what your thoughts are on that. Well, um, my, my thoughts are queerness and polyamory is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are my, my initial thoughts. I could say a lot more. Is there something specific that, um, that you're wanting to, to talk about. And, and I'll just say also for listeners, I specialize in working with polyamory. I'm also a poly person and I am a queer person and I also specialize in working with queer people. So these are definitely arenas that I think a lot about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, and I'm glad that you're, I'm very glad you're out there doing that work. Um, I'm sure your, your clients are too, to have that space. Um, I, I hope they are. Yeah. It's much needed. Um, I guess, I guess my question is really about, um, you know, when it comes to, I think there's something about navigating, um, poly relationality that, that requires, maybe requires is too strong a word, but, but maybe benefits from being able to really know about your, own needs and your own desires and also kind of implicates the the as we were calling it the shadow side you know like the this sort of things like envy jealousy you know um possessiveness whatever like all of those sort of themes come together um or can come together i guess um and so i'm just curious like what your thoughts are about maybe how you have how you have come or within your, your practice with, with clients, how you've come to sort of develop a framework for thinking about the importance of learning and articulating, learning about and articulating needs when it comes to um, poly relationships. Yeah, this is a, a great question. I have so much to say about it. Um, I, so I definitely think, you know, it's actually interesting how I was saying earlier, like if you're going to be a healing practitioner, you basically have to heal more than you would probably choose to if you were not a healing practitioner. Yeah, I kind of feel a little bit like polyamory is the same way. And, you know, maybe some people would disagree with me on that and then they're welcome to. But um, and I think that the work that you have to do to be in an open relationship is it, it's a lot it's really a lot. And I, and I don't think it is, I think people who are in monogamous relationships could definitely benefit from the same level of work, but there is something about being socialized in an environment 
that tells you that polyamory is wrong and that monogamy is right and and sort of gives this like framework for what a relationship should look like. So, for example, like a basic idea would be, you know, if your partner really loves you, they would never, ever be attracted to or interested in someone else. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know that is not true. That is not true for anyone. It's not true from people who practice monogamy, who practice polyamory, anything. But, you know, it's just so um, ingrained in us that we have really big reactions to the idea that somebody who we are romantically involved with would have an attraction to somebody else. I mean, not not everybody has that kind of reaction, but definitely I think that's an uh, an early on reaction in poly relationships when somebody hasn't maybe done some of the untangling of that. Um, and, uh, and then of course, also if we think about it from an attachment lens, um, you know, you, you have like you're in a monogamous relationship, there's all this emphasis in attachment theory and all this emphasis in sort of the application of attachment theory that's about, um, that is just very monogamous. It's very much about looking at like two people building this really, really, really special bond. And, you know, you're each other's person and you heal your attachment wounds together. And then when you get into a situation where there's a bunch of other people and you have lots of different levels of attachment to them, um, and lots of your different attachment wounds playing out. I mean, I, I think a lot of times what I see in poly relationships is that people play out a lot of um, uh, their attachment relationships with their siblings, uh, with their metamors. Um, hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, it's like, you maybe you're yeah. both dating the same person. It's like, you know, they can totally be like, oh, like I want my, you know, you're getting too much of that parent. I want some of that parent. I mean, it can totally yeah. bring up, you know, like attachment wounds like that. So. I think that polyamory just it I think it demands a lot of personal work in order to get clear about as you were kind of asking in that question about needs and also get clear about like what needs you're not actually going to sort of put onto the relationship too. I think that's another big piece mm. is, mm-hmm. you know with monogamy there's this I mean and you know when I say with monogamy I, I want to say I'm really really supportive of monogamy. I'm not a person who's like oh monogamy's bad. Um but I, I do think that what we have just kind of constructed <clears throat> in dominant culture about monogamy at this point is like, it's not good for people who want to be monogamous either. Like right. the idea that you get all your needs met just from this one person. And, you know, and, and I think this is a huge thing in queer culture too. It's like, and if you, if that person doesn't meet your needs, every single need, you know, like they're bad or the relationship is toxic. Um, and I think that, in polyamory, you, you definitely have to face this because, you know, you might have a partner who is not going to meet all of your needs or they might be meeting some of your needs and meeting someone else's needs. Um, and I, I know that it's like a, not a popular kind of thing to say. And there's like it goes against like a million Instagram memes. But, you know, like we actually it's unreasonable to expect um another person to meet all of your needs. And it's unreasonable to expect a group of people to necessarily meet every single need. And and sometimes what we actually experience is the grief of not having a need met, or we have to experience being creative about how we're going to address the need. Um, So I think polyamory just really forces you to, to like address all these things. Otherwise it feels really bad. And I think there's a lot of people who are like, polyamory doesn't work. And I'm like, okay, it feels really bad to you probably because something about how it's working 
it needs help. Like if you're in a sort of poly system that feels really bad, um, there may there may be some growth that needs to happen to make it function. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I would say that, you know, I would say the same thing about monogamy, honestly, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's so much about kind of just negativity about polyamory. And when people are like, polyamory doesn't work, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. 50% of marriages end in divorce. Are you going to tell me monogamy doesn't work either? Right. And I mean, I'm just in a place of neutrality about like, it's it's about what you want in your life. And I, and I support people to do like whatever they want in their life. And And yes, polyamory definitely forces you to do a level of personal work that not everybody feels like they want to spend their time doing, which is 100% yeah. understandable. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is, I think the parallels having read your book are, are, are pretty clear in my mind, just in terms of your, your sort of approach to a lot of things is that, that confronting some of the forces that sort of under our our sort of subterranean or underneath um our relational patterns is is painful and but often necessary and that it is generally speaking worthwhile work because it 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 is it does lead to kind of more ease um but i wonder if if you have anything like anything to sort of expand on in terms of that um like when you find yourself up against um maybe resistance within your own self or within the work the clients that you work with um or maybe within you know your uh relationship to psychedelics like where there's sort of something doesn't feel good or like is hard in the body, you know, um, it seems like you're very interested in looking at the underlying kind of wounds or what the needs are that aren't being met or the underlying grief. Um, and so, you know, and I can relate to that as a, a clinician who, who works with people who've experienced, um, really significant trauma. It's often, you know, we're really doing kind of grief work. Um, but I do wonder if you have experiences or anything that comes to mind when you think about like that resistance to how hard things can be um, in any yeah. of these areas. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think a lot about this, like, and I'm sure for people, there are people who are therapists that are listening, like it's, there's so much in our work that's like, okay, somebody doesn't want to do that thing. They don't want to heal or they want to heal, but they don't want to do the, the sort of painful work to heal. And, and so much of we do, what we do is just kind of sit there and go, okay, how am I going to support this person to want to do something really painful that will hopefully lead toward feeling, I don't know, feeling better, feeling more present, you know, whatnot. And so I spend a lot of time wondering about this, thinking about it. And Something that's really supported me in in that process is is I love um, learning more and more about Buddhism and meditation and uh, and the really like what a lot of Buddhist thinking is about and and theory is about is how do we suffer and mm-hmm. and this is another I mean oh my gosh I could just talk forever about this but there's 
there's so much happening in this sort of like dominant culture narrative around this idea that if you're kind of like hashtag living your best life, that life is really good. Yeah. Life is happiness. Life is never having an illness. Life is nobody dying. Life is a perfectly, uh, you know, photographed picture of you next to a pool drinking a martini, like whatever, just life is so life is amazing. Life mm-hmm. is the perfect throw blanket. Um, and, you know, and obviously I, I, my book is very anti-capitalist. I think this all very much kind of relates to capitalist sort of thinking and capitalist narratives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic actually is, is really illuminating around this too. Like, I mean, when it first started, I just heard so many people being like, this is not what my life is supposed to be. This mm-hmm. isn't supposed to happen. And, and I yeah. think some, some of that is, you know, just an expression of really deep pain. And it's so uncomfortable to wake up to reality, which is that we're being told that, you know, if you, if you're of the privileged class or if you, you know, if you work hard enough, like you're not actually going to suffer that much. But what's actually real is that life is just a lot of suffering. It's also a lot of joy and awe, but that process of really being able to suffer and suffer with meaning. Yeah. It's hard. We live in a culture that doesn't support it. We actually live in a culture that tells you that if you like that, you, 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 you straight up deserve better or like you, you know, there's a, there are people who get to live without this. Um, I think about, you know, like I watched one episode of the Kardashians ever. I am not really a big TV watcher, but somebody was like, you know, like, oh, you should watch this, you know, and I watched an episode and I was so fascinated because the Kardashians are these like super, super rich people who, you know, like, you know, are living kind of hashtag living their best lives. And I was like, all these people do is argue the whole time and they're really unhappy. (laughs) Yeah. They're definitely suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, just. And I talk about that in my book too, you know, like no, no one is spared of suffering. And if, the, if there's only one thing you do in your life that, and it's just, I am going to work on being able to suffer better. Like you've made it. It's, you know, like being mm-hmm. able to find a way toward our own suffering is, it, it is part of the mystery of life and, and being able to survive it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I, I'm just like waxing poetic on this, but like, you know, I also really think like the practical like manner in which we learn to suffer in a way that's really meaningful to me, that includes a lot around spirituality. And I don't mean like sky daddy, G-O-D spirituality, but like truly connecting to something much larger than ourselves and just connecting to the nature of reality and to our own humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you kind of saying that, especially, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but also just thinking about um, kind of conceptions, how, the way in which capitalism sort of um, uh, infiltrates expectations of, again, what what happens in a therapeutic or a healing context where it's sort of the mark of, of success is, um, you know, everything feeling really good or, you know, like, Ooh, I'm done with therapy. I like made it, you know, I worked that shit out. And it's, it's like something you can purchase or something you can, um, kind of attain. And it, it, it really does feel like the most meaningful therapeutic relationships and 
relationships I've had in, in my life are, are the relationships where there is a kind of uh, learning or leaning into how to not resist suffering. And this is certainly something I deal with as, as someone who lives with chronic health issues is, you know, how do I learn to um, not resist pain? uh, Because that makes things more painful, you know, (laughs) on a lot of different levels. And so um, I, yeah, I appreciate you kind of centering that as, as something that that has been supportive, that framework is uh, something that's been supportive for you. Um. Yeah. And I'll also add, you know, like on a a psychedelic front, I think this is Mm. just, this is really a a big kind of, and I actually talk a little bit about this in the book too, about just sort of this idea that we're having that um, there's, there's so much information out there about like psychedelics can save the world and, you know, psychedelics can heal your PTSD and, Mm-hmm. And, you know, and people are like, psychedelics are so cool. You know, I saw like rainbows and shooting stars and dolphins flying in the sky when I took, you know, psychedelic drugs. Um, and, and actually people who do trauma healing work with entheogens and psychedelics um, suffer. They suffer a lot. I just did an interview the other day where I was talking with um, someone else in the psychedelics world and we were laughing together about she was saying like, oh yeah, you know, when you're 10 hours in and you're just like, why is this still happening? Like, why am I still in the psychedelic journey? It's so terrible. And I was reflecting like, yeah, I mean, most of the psychedelic work I've done that has been, you know, for, for healing trauma, my own trauma. Um, it's terrible the entire time. It's actually, it's, it's truly a practice in suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we take, you know, like MDMA at a party or, or take mushrooms and like run around in the woods and like we're having with friends and having a good time and the intention is just to be light and playful, um, it can definitely be a light, playful experience. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it again, that just gets into the like capitalism machine, <laughs> the American yeah. dream machine. And it um, and it gets totally distorted. And and, you know, I, I'm a ketamine therapist, uh, like I practice ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Um, and so much about that and so much about integration work, um, and, and psychedelic work is really dismantling this capitalist idea around it, that you're going in and buying a product. It instantly makes you feel good and replacing that with the nature of reality, which is healing, (laughs) healing always includes some suffering. Like there's not actually any drug in the world that just makes it be like all that grief you have, all that fear, all that anger, poof, it's gone. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, to that point, I guess, um, sort of as we're, we're winding down, if you don't mind, I'm going to just read a, a little section of your book that I, that really resonated for me. I mean, there's a lot of parts that resonated for me, but I really, um, really like this part. So I'm going to read from, um, the chapter on degradation of healership and the path forward. So you say, I want to make a case for the critical importance of healing the impacts of colonialism, slavery, capitalism, and spiritual oppression in each of us. Our clients may come to us seeking healing for something as seemingly unpolitical as intimacy issues or the management of diabetes. Yet these ailments are intricately are intimately connected to larger systems of oppression. 
to disregard that connection is a disservice to their health and the health of the world. Um, and then you go on to say, in my opinion, the end goal of healing is not to make us better able to function within a capitalist system. It is to liberate us from that system. And I concur, but I would, I would love for, you know, you to kind of just say a little bit about what that liberation might entail or look like. Is it partly connected to this idea that <clears throat> of being more practiced in um, kind of accepting the nature of suffering and also being able to imagine um, more liberatory or, you know, easeful circumstances? Ooh, yeah. Well, the, the first thing I'll start with in this is I, I do want to say, like, I don't think capitalism is going to end in my lifetime. And I also, it's really important, I think, for us to view ourselves in our political work in, in a much larger time frame. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, we're, we're, we are in a moment that we probably won't see it end in our lifetimes, but I, I still want to work towards it ending someday because it yep. needs to. So I want to say that, that that's like a big commitment um, that I feel. And yeah, healing is so deeply political. And there is a way that, again, everything goes into the capitalist American dream machine and it just like becomes unpoliticized. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, and I, I mean, it just is, it just is really, really, really political. And what I see happening in these sort of like, when it becomes unpoliticized is that we see liberation as being really successful in capitalism. Yeah. And when you interact with or speak to people, which I do speak and interact with people who are, you know, quote, really successful in capitalism, they're not happy. They're not happy because capitalism is really toxic. And one of the ways that I think it is really, really toxic, and this leads to your question about what, you know, the liberatory practices, it's really toxic in part because it is incredibly isolating. Mm -hmm. It divides communities. It makes us pitted against each other. Like I can't, you know, I have something I have to keep. It's money. I can't give it to you. I have to keep my resources. I can't share it with you. Um, Maybe I'm the one in need. You have the resources. You won't share it with me. Um, it, there's, you know, there's a way that we, even just the the simple act of being able to be like, oh, everything that is hard to do in my life, I don't have to ask for any help with it. I don't, I don't even have to do it. I just pay someone else, you know, like I don't have to like, you know, change my own oil or I don't have to move um, my, my belongings when I move from one home to another um, I'm going to pay someone to do it, or I'm not going to ask somebody to help me, you know, whatever the thing is. And I'm not necessarily saying that like, I choose to do all these things, but these are just sort of narratives of like, mm -hmm. you know, life is really good when you can just kind of afford to pay other people to do everything hard. And again, that's some avoiding of suffering and it's mm -hmm. also incredibly isolating. And so the, the liberatory practices, like even if you aren't going to, you know, necessarily like if your path is not to be a political activist or your path is not to do um, 
sort of something that's like a direct action toward a political goal. Even the goal of building really, really strong community that is not about money Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not about avoiding suffering, that Mm -hmm. is anti-capitalist and it is a like perfectly, you know, it's a it's a beautiful goal and it really supports a lot of people because it supports people to be less isolated. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, with the COVID-19 pandemic, again, it's like, you know, I mean, we were already isolated and, and now and now people are just like, oh my God, like I actually, there is a limit to how isolated I can be and be okay. Right. right. So that's, yeah, I feel like I could have written a whole book just about like how important community is. Um, but it probably wouldn't be like as interesting or, or, I mean, yeah, I don't need, I don't need to down, down to, to degrade my community concept, but I just think like coming out of isolation and is so incredible and that capitalism is incredibly isolating. White supremacy yeah. is incredibly isolating. Christian supremacy is isolating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'll leave it mm-hmm. at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. Um, the work that you and I do optimally, ideally is, you know, one step in some people's or communities journeys to, um, to experience what it feels like to not be isolated in, you know, psychically or somatically in the world. And, um, and then there's often a cup more of a capacity to build on that, those experiences. So to have less and less isolating experiences. Um, so I really, I, I really appreciate the work you do. And um, I would love to hear, you know, just for the listeners, if we can hear a little bit about how folks can connect with the various things that you have going on um, and are putting out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, first I want to say thank you so much for having me. This is like, I, I love the organicness of the show and I love the organicness of our conversation. And it, it's just like a delight to like, even just sort of like throw away all the sort of quote talking points and just like <laughs> go with it and explore. I love it. I love, I just love conversation, which is probably how I became a therapist. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so I have a couple of things. I have this podcast called Inside Eyes. It, it, you can find it on any podcasting um, app and it is about people using psychedelics and entheogens to heal sexual trauma. I will also say it's more of an audio series that came out as a podcast. So it actually works to go back all the way back to episode one and and listen from there. And I mm-hmm. do a lot of framing around like thinking about sexual trauma through a spiritual lens uh, thinking about, you know, this, this stuff within capitalism. And, um, so definitely, I think that's a great resource for people. It's also kind of heavy. Um, and then I have my book radical healership, uh, which can be purchased anywhere. My, my mom, my mom reached out to me and was like, Laura, did you know you can like get your, your book is available at like, I think it was target. And I was like, yeah, mom, like you can, I, you know, I'm on a really small publisher, but, um, they're, um, distributed by Penguin Random House. And so, mm-hmm. um, it's truly like my books for sale at Walmart, um, which, you know, I don't support Walmart, but small bookstores, people, small bookstores. <laughs> yeah. Um, totally. And then if you want to stay connected to me, I have, you can go to my website, lauramaynorthrop.com. I have a, um, an email list that I 
like send one email out a year on. Um, and then I know I'm like, here's, here's where I'm basically like, and I don't actually promote myself that well. Um, but then the other big thing that I do is I, I post on Instagram. And so you're welcome to find me on there. I'm at Laura May Northrup and you know, it's like memes plus like, you know, things that I'm up to. So, and I love to be connected with people and hear how people are like, I'm really excited to hear how the book lands with people, the podcast, I got lots of feedback about it. It's really like beautiful to put something in the world and then also get to experience like just hearing about how it um, supports people. So yeah, that's all my stuff. I love it. I love it. Well, it's been a real honor to talk to you and I look forward to more conversations. Awesome. Thank you. 